Now we zoom in a little bit more on Persia and the Greeks specifically. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Chapter 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. Susa is the capital of Persian Empire. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west, the north, the south, and no animal could stand against him, and none could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So the first thing he sees is a ram. The ram is the male of the flock. So when you have rams, that's the male, and sheep are the females. And so it's a male sheep, so to speak, of the flock. In his prophetic books, it is symbolic of impressive rulers. Every time you see the ram in the prophetic books, when you see it back in the Torah, it's usually symbolic of a substitutionary sacrifice. You see that in the ram skins on the tabernacle. You see it when the ram is provided for Abraham after he almost sacrificed Isaac. But in the prophetic books, it portrays um, oppressive rulers. And you can see this in Ezekiel 34, 17, Ezekiel 39, 18, Jeremiah 51, 40, and Zechariah 10, 3. It has two horns, one of which was longer than the other. Now, this emphasizes the Persian Median Empire. Now, we talked about this before with the bear. The bear had one side lifted up higher than the other. And many people in the Roman view take the bear to be the Medo-Persian Empire. And the one side lifted up higher than the other emphasizes the Persians were more dominant than the Medes in that thing. However, we talked about the fact that the Greek view took this as the two growths. Medes were kind of powerful and that it um, and then it became less powerful when the Persians came along. That makes more sense because it represents the two stages. Likewise, we see this two stages here. So where in the bear, if you take the Roman view, the Medes and the Persians represent two things existing at the same time. Where if you take the Greek view, the one hump represents one stage, and the other hump represents another stage. And now we see that with the ram, who everybody agrees is Persia, and it re the one horn represents one stage, and the other horn represents another stage. So it seems to strengthen interpreting the Greek view in the previous vision. And so the one horn rises up, and that would be the Medes, and then the other one comes up later, more dominant and more powerful and bigger, and that represents the Persians. Remember we talked about that horns symbolically represent power and authority. And that's why they would put them on the sides of their head when they went into, um, they minted coins. And this is why this is on our crowns. Anything with horns is going to mess you up when it rams into you. This is a powerful animal that goes out and destroys things. It charges towards the west, the north, and the south. This makes sense because the Persian Empire came from the east and it charged towards the west, towards the Mediterranean and what we know as modern day Turkey. And it charged towards the north all the way up to the Black Sea and a little bit past it, like between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea up here. And then it charged all the way to the south down into Egypt. 
And so that fits the direction it's coming from. Now later it does move into towards India, but that was not its initial charge. And that was a much slower growth. None could rescue it from its power. No animal could stand against it. And that was true. The Persian Empire conquered the world without losing any battles. They did not lose one battle. No other nation has claimed that in the ancient world, as far as an empire goes. And he did as he pleased and became great. Normally, he became great is not necessarily a negative comment. It could refer to just becoming great, becoming famous, becoming powerful. But in what is used of humans in association with he did as he pleased, or to mag- it refers to magnifying oneself, lifting yourself above God. And that's the idea here is when you take this, it became great, and it put in the context of humans, and then it says he did as he pleases. That's the idea of autonomy and taking the fruit and following your heart and doing it. Then all that in the context means self-magnification, self-glorification. It's putting themselves above God, and therefore this is why it's a beast. It's an animal. Remember we talked about the fact that a one horn longer than the other would be a mutation, and that mutations were considered unclean animals according to the sacrificial system. So this shows the Persian Empire. Now, one could ask the question, okay, we've already seen the Persian Empire in the statue. We've already seen the Persian Empire in the beast. Why do we need to see the Persian Empire again? Well, remember, Joseph told us why. Joseph is the only other person that we really have like a dream interpreter like Daniel. And Joseph told us that when the Pharaoh had two dreams, one with the sheaves of grain and the other one with the cows, Joseph said the fact that you had this dream twice means it's definitely going to happen. And so the repetition of the vision makes it clear that God has, this is definitely going to happen. There is no way of stopping the Persian Empire from rising up. And we talked about in chapter 7, the fact that the four winds of God are churning up the sea means that he's allowing this to happen. Not that he's making these nations come, but he's allowing it to happen. And his providence is allowing it. Likewise, by getting different animals and different things being emphasized, we get a much more clear picture. Now think about it. For us, it's very easy to look back thousands of years later We have many historical documents, much archaeological discoveries, and in a lot of ways we have a much better picture. Well, in some ways we're still incredibly ignorant of the ancient world because there's so much that we haven't discovered. But in other ways we do have a much bigger broad picture of ancient history because we can look at it in archaeological digs and historical documents and put it together and make nice YouTube pictures, videos, and like flow charts and that kind of stuff. And the average normal people who just worked on a farm and were illiterate really is not going to have that big picture kind of thing. Think about how ignorant we would be of what's happening in America without modern day communication and media. If we, if we were just left to paper and people riding horses to deliver it, There'd be, we would have no idea what Trump and Biden and all of them were doing. And we'd only know what a poster was telling us or traders through word of mouth were telling us. These animals, the more and more pictures they get and the more angles they get, the when it begins to happen, they, the better the chance they are of recognizing, oh, that's it. That's it. Because they're only going to get little glimpses and little angles compared to what we have. 
We have way more knowledge of these empires than the average age normal person did back then. Although we probably have way less knowledge of these empires than the rulers themselves had of that time period. These pictures, multiple pictures in multiple ways, shows us, gives them a better chance to recognize it. And it helps us. Because as we discover things, we can say, yeah, this definitely is. And all this keeps pointing to the fact that God actually knows what he's talking about. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes. Now, I always love how Daniel says, as I was thinking about this, another thing happened. It's like, you thought being in this class was like drinking from the fire hose, but God is really making him drink from the fire hose because he just gets cryptic image after cryptic image. After, and then every time he's like, what does this mean? The angel's like, well, it's a, a nation. And it's like there's not much explanation. He doesn't even have time to process this. Suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Now this is called a he-goat, literally in the Greek. And a goat is way more powerful than a ram. A goat is way more powerful than a ram. When I was at the zoo with my girls one time, they had those mountain goats in the, the Asian section of the zoo. And there's this piece of glass that's really thick, and it's between you and the goat. And I remember standing there with my, I think she was about four years old at the time, and Vienna was just in my hands, and we were just staring at the goat. I was like, look at the goat. And that thing was just staring us down. And all of a sudden, it put its head down and started charging as fast as it could. And I didn't have time to react because it moved fast. And it slammed into that glass so hard with its horns down, and the whole glass like rippled like multiple times. And I'm sure it wasn't complete glass, like hopefully there's a fiberglass slash glass, that kind of stuff. And I had this thought like, oh my gosh, if that thing would have broken, we both would have been messed up. And I was like, let's just back away. <laughs> it was kind of a freaky experience. I mean, m way more freaky knowing that your four-year-old daughter's next to you than if I had just been alone. And that gave me a little kind of insight like, if it can take this, that glass is at least a half of an inch thick. And if it can ripple that whole thing, imagine this thing slamming into you in real life. And the goats are way more powerful than rams. This goat comes across and it moves so fast it doesn't even touch the earth. Now the one horn represents Alexander the Great. Now this is clearly distinguished from the little horn in the previous vision. Because the little horn in the previous vision came up much later in the beast and it was able to talk and boast. This horn is right there right off the bat. It does not grow up later. He came toward two horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charge at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him, and the goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and no one could rescue the ram from his power. Now that communicates the idea of Alexander's very swift attacks over and over again. When he came across the Hell's Punch Strait, which is up here around Lydia, he just moved through modern-day Turkey, like zigzag across that area, and just attack after attack after attack. It was multiple hits after multiple hits. But the other thing is, from what I've read, I've never heard this or seen this personally, but because there are many animals, deer and gazelle and, and moose and that kind of stuff, who do like fight each other, and they hit their horns against each other, supposedly it's not uncommon for a horn to crack and split. 
and supposedly it's a really horrific sound to hear when a horn splits. And remember, we are just getting the words of the vision, but um, Daniel is getting this in full 3D. He is getting the sounds, the visuals, everything. And this must have been a very traumatic thing to watch a mutated goat slam down on a mutated ram and just beat it and beat it and beat it in a vicious way. And usually when two goats go against each other, two rams, their horns get tangled or they hit, and they just kind of hit and hit and hit. I think it would be a much different sight to see the other one not actually fighting back and just getting pummeled down to the ground. That is way more violent, way more sadistic in that sense, and the horn's cracking. He knocks it down to the ground and he wins. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, now once again you see that became very great. That is the self-magnification, the self-glorification. But the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of the heaven. These represent the later stage because they're coming later. And these four horns would represent the four generals. When Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, he was succeeded by his four generals, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucid, or Seleucus, and Cassander. The two most prominent of them would be Ptolemy and Seleucus. And they became great. And they go towards the four winds of the heavens because they moved all four directions. They moved in all four directions. So to see this on the map, Alexander the Great pretty much took over and conquered everything. And then we have the four different parts of the Greek Empire divided up among these four generals. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now this is significant because the little horn is now the Seleucids. And the Seleucids were one of those four generals and they had a long line of descendants that came from them. And the little horn would represent them and they first started in the east. When the land was all divided up, all they were able to control was this orange part on the map. And so they controlled that. But he then began to, the Seleucids began to move eastwards towards Antolia, or modern-day Turkey, and then towards the south, towards the beautiful land. The beautiful land is always Israel in these visions. So you can see in the beginning, it is a man by the name of Antigonus who controlled Lydia and the Europe. But then eventually the Ptolemies took over Judah, and then eventually later the Seleucids took over. In this period, from between the Greek Empire under Alexander III all the way to the Roman Empire, the Jews had three different emperors ruling over them. First Antigonus, and then the Ptolemies, and then the Seleucids. So that's the idea of the Seleucids moving southward towards the beautiful land. And eventually they would gain that control under a man by the name of Antiochus III. Now one of the things to remember here is that all the kings of Seleucids are either named Antiochus or Seleucus. They're all named that. It's like Seleucus I, Seleucus II, Antiochus I, Antiochus II, and it just goes back and forth. And they just all carry that name. So Antiochus III was the one who captured Judah, what we know as Israel, and that's the little horn, him. 
He's the little horn. And remember I talked about the fact that many people see the little horn as one single figure, which it might more likely refer to a line. Just like the shoot in Isaiah 7, growing up out of the stump of Israel, represents the line of David that will eventually lead to Jesus. Thus the horn that's growing up out of this beast's head most likely represents the line of Seleucus that finalizes itself and Antiochus IV who would be their antichrist. Of course, the Jews would call them their anti-God figures since Christ hasn't come along yet. Now, once again, we're just going to keep going. We're reviewing this over and over and over again. This is like the third or fourth time I've talked about this. Repetition is the key to learning, and repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature. And we'll keep repeating this over and over again to help sink it into your mind. And so this most likely represents the line. And when it begins to talk, the idea is that's when it's Antiochus IV. That's the Antiochus IV. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, stars are often associated with the angels or the gods. Now, the idea may not be that he's literally throwing down angels or gods to the earth. There's no way a human could ever do that. But metaphorically speaking, Antiochus IV declared himself a god. And he demanded that everybody worship him as a god and sacrifice to him as a god. And so that could be the idea that he's elevating himself above the starry host. And in, in propaganda, he's throwing them down and saying that they don't mean anything. It set itself up as, the great, as great as the prince of hosts. Now remember, the, we're going to talk about this in chapter 10. But the word prince here associated with host. The word host is a military term. It refers to an angelic army. And it's usually associated with angels and armies. And so by calling himself the prince of the hosts, a prince is a ruler. And it can be used interchangeably with a king sometimes as well. And we're going to see this in Daniel 10, where the certain angels are going to be called princes. This is him saying, I am the ruler over the armies of the heavens, so to speak. Then, this is where it's totally Antiochus IV. It set itself as a great prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifices from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. This is exactly what Antiochus IV done. No other person in all of human history had literally put the sacrificial system to an end. He stopped it completely for almost three and a half years. And then not only did he end all sacrifices in the temple, but he also forbid all Jewish festivals. Then he required the Jews to sacrifice, sacrifice pigs to the Zeus. And he desecrated the temple by bringing idol Zeus in and sacrificing pigs. Nobody has ever done this up to this point. So this clearly points to Antiochus IV. This is the easiest to identify, and this is where all scholars are pretty universal on, because the language is so precise. It's also the other reason I think the Greek view fits way better with the fourth beast, because the fourth beast, the horn, is, matches up with this horn. It can talk and it boasts, and it brings a destruction to the temple and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't make sense for these two horns to be two different things. It makes more sense than the both referred to Antiochus IV. But if you take the Roman view, it can't be Antiochus IV. It has to be some kind of Roman figure, and they usually point to Titus. And Titus didn't do anything really as significant as Antiochus IV did. 
It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, this would be an angel, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifices, the rebellion that causes desolation. So this rebellion that causes desolation is often referred to as the abomination of desolation. If you've heard that in like, that's an old school term. Abomination means something that is unholy and unnatural and never should ever happen. Like the abominable snowman. It doesn't natu- it's not a natural thing to exist. And desolation is when you bring an end to something in a defiling way. Not just bringing it in, but destroying it and defiling it. And so this is him doing this to the sacrificial system in the temple. How long would it be? The surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. This is literally three and a half years. And Antiochus IV desecrated the temple for about three years and ten days. So it's not quite three and a half years, but as we'll learn, numbers are never exactly precise in the Bible. When you have a number like 2,432, it's more likely that it's going to be precise. But when you see round numbers, they seem to be more round numbers. You see this when God lists the amount of people that lived in each tribe in the book of Numbers, and they all tend to be round to the nearest hundred. I really highly doubt that every single tribe like, was literally round, like they just perfectly hit that number in every single one. And when God says that there were like 20,000 Midianites and 30,000 Armenians coming at them, no. Remember, you and I are obsessed with details as Americans. We have the ability to be completely precise and count things very accurately. We have computers and Siri and calculators and all that kind of stuff. And so we can be more precise. In the ancient world, they don't stand out on a city wall looking at an army and they're like, oh yeah, there's 40,324 people out there. Okay, they can't do that. And God works with what they understand. Yes, God knows the exact number, but that's not how he writes the Bible. He writes the Bible through humans. So things tend to be more rounded off. When you say, oh, I went camping for three days. Well, no, you didn't. Most likely you really did not like head out at 12 a.m. in the morning and came back at 12 a.m. three days back, like precisely in the dot. Most of the time it was like two and a half days or maybe even two days and one hour. But you still consider it three days because it was three sunrises. And so even today, with all of our preciseness, we still use general terms, especially when it comes to time, and when we round people off in large crowds too, the Million Man March, there wasn't literally a million men there, it was actually not even anywhere close to that, but we still call it that. And so even as Americans, we like to think that we're really super precise, but most of the time, if you really pay attention to your language, we're not, and a lot of times too, Even the media, we like inflating numbers and rounding things off and that kind of stuff. This isn't a lot of people throw, oh, not exact. No, 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 no. Most people do not go with exactness. We can't, that's just too much pressure to be constantly exact all the time. And so three and a half years is most likely what it's referring to. Now we have more of an idea of when this Antiochus IV is going to come. All you have to do is look for this. You know that horns represent kings. 
you know that horns represent empires. So as you watch for this, you see two empires rise up and then one becomes more dominant than the other. That's definitely going to make the news. They may not understand all the details that are going on, but word is going to spread who's ruling over you. And you're going to know the two parts. And then you're going to hear about this Alexander III. And then four generals break out after that. And then one of them prominently comes into your land and begins to desecrate your temple. And that's enough detail for you to figure out this is happening. Now, if all you were told is a little horn is going to come and do this, it might be a little bit harder. But when you have a succession of horns and they all are grouped in patterns in certain ways, then it's much easier to look out for that and follow it. So the Jews have an idea of when this horrific time is coming. And this isn't uncommon for a God. He was not as detailed and as symbolic when he was in the book of Genesis. But if you think about it, way back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, know this. Your descendants will go into a foreign land, and the king will oppress you for four generations. But in 400 years, I will bring them out with the wealth of that nation, and then you will come to the land. But you will not see this in your own lifetime. You will go to the grave in a ripe old age. He told them exactly what was going to come. Sometime after the death of Abraham, which happened about two generations later, he took them into Egypt, and they were enslaved for 400 years. And when incredibly traumatic events come, God does prophesy those. He does prepare his people for them. And so, and even with the prophecies of the, when the Canaan, when they were oppressed in the book of Judges, he told them that would happen. Okay, he said, if you disobey me, I'll allow the other nations to come in. And they did. And then he told them through many, many, many prophets, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. And then he told them the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. God actually warns us in great events when tragedy is coming, like horrific national things. And there's a lot of things he does not tell us about the future. But when there's something really traumatic and horrific that's going to shatter the nation as a whole, he does warn of those events. And, and like the Canaanites, like the Egyptians, and like the Assyrians, and like the Babylonians, he's warning of, warning of this anti-God figure that will be coming. And he's giving very precise numbers and very precise dating so that they can see it coming. And this is powerful because God is prepping them because he loves them, but also showing them that this is his plan. And that if they get through it, they'll be okay because they will get through it because he already knew this was going to come. And this is why he's getting so detailed in all this stuff. Verse 15 while I, Daniel, was watching in the vision and was trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uliah calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. This is the first time ever we have the name of an angel. There's only two angels that are ever mentioned by name, and that's Gabriel and Michael. Unlike the Catholics, who have a whole repertoire of names for angels that are never mentioned except for here. And the only time we ever see Gabriel and Michael is in the book of Daniel. And then we see Gabriel appear in the Gospels and the birth announcements. And then we see Michael briefly appear in Revelation. That's significant because we like to become obsessive over angels in the spiritual realm and that kind of stuff. And yet God barely mentions these. All Michael's also mentioned in Jude. Barely, briefly mentioned. 
we don't get these, which means God is giving us names, but he doesn't, it doesn't really matter that much in the grand scheme of revelation. Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. Now in the ancient world, the lower you bow down to the ground, it shows the greater sense of the power of the person. So if I just lightly bow down to you, you're not that significant. But if he's prostrating himself on the ground, that means this angel had to look awesome and authoritative in the face of Daniel. Now, this is not bowing down in worship. He just prostrated himself in honor. Now, later when we get to the book of Revelation, John's going to border on worshiping the angel. And we're going to see that because the angel's like, no, 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 no. You don't worship me. Like this honoring is kind of crossing the line a little bit, John. You only worship the one on the throne. And so this is the fact that the angel is not correcting him here, and yet he will in the book of John, says that this is not a worshiping thing. This is just him honoring. While I was speaking, I was in the deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and said, rise to my feet, raise me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of the wrath. Now the word wrath is just the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of the Median Persia. Now, this is why all scholars agree, because now he is specifically telling us. Most of the time when the angels give the interpretation of the dream, no offense, but it's like you weren't really that helpful. But now he's actually much more helpful. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represents the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. And the later part of the reign, when, re- um, reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding, astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people, and he will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. Now notice how it mentions specifically deceit, not just destruction, okay, deceit. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take a stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evening and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now that's significant. This vision was horrific enough and disturbing enough that Daniel became physically ill for many days. Probably just a great depression. A great depression. Knowing what was coming. I mean, like I said, nothing has ever desecrated the temple and stopped all sacrifices like Antiochus IV was going to. Daniel doesn't know of that. Yes, he knows the temple has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but not a, a desecration like this. And you would think, too, that Daniel knows that they're going to be returned back to the land eventually and the temple will be rebuilt. And you would think, hey, this is over with, right? Exile is going to fix us all. 
and yet he's learning of a desecration that is yet to come. And that really lets you know this is not over with. Daniel's getting the first glimpse of the fact that everything's not going to be hunky-dory in the return. He, according to the prophets, is expecting the cosmic mountain of God to be established and all the nations flooding to it. And there's no evil and there's an end of sin. And the Messiah is going to come and establish his throne and put all the nations in his rule. And they really believe, because the prophets really make it sound like, that when they return to the land, that's it. And now he's learning about a desecration of the temple. And he knows it's after the return of the land because the temple doesn't exist, which means it has to be rebuilt, which means they have to go back to the land and get it desecrated. And I don't know if he's really connected the dots yet because in the next chapter we're going to see that he's going to ask, hey, is the end of the exile, God? Is it coming? And that says that he hasn't really accepted the, connected the dots yet, that exile truly will not be over with the return of the land, or he's in denial. Or he still hasn't really figured out what this vision means. And so, yet it's horrific. It's horrific and it's depressed and significantly. Here's the thing to focus on. Notice how many times it says the horn was broken off or the horn was destroyed or the horn was replaced. What God is making clear is that each one of these guys think that they're all that. They think they're the greatest thing that's ever come along. They think they're going to last for a long time. They think that nobody can stop them. And yet, notice how much more quickly this one was. Before one horn really had its chance to be there in the limelight and say, hey, look at me, I'm awesome, it's being destroyed and replaced by another horn. And by the time that God says it became great, it's destroyed and replaced by another one. It magnified it. And the minute they self-glorify themselves, they're destroyed. And what God is saying is that all kings will fall. All kings will fall. I know this movie is corny, but I think this is one of the best lines to describe kings. There was a movie called Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure back in the 80s. And Bill and Ted end up hooking up with Death, the Grim Reaper with the sickle and stuff. And Death has this little rhyme or a little ditty that he sings. And he says, you may be a king on high or a little street sweeper, a little street sweeper, but eventually everybody dances with the reaper. And it just oh, never forgot that when all kings fall. And I think that's a, a nice little ditty that it doesn't matter who you are and how awesome you think you are. Eventually you will fall and eventually your end will come. And we like to think that we're establishing these undestroyable legacies. But think about it. Nobody remembers any of these kings now. And the ones that we do remember, they're just like names in our history class or Wikipedia articles that we briefly go over. Even the geeks who know a lot more about them, it's still not really that much. These people will all come to an end. And it takes you back to the fact that each metal is replaced by another metal, each beast is destroyed by another beast, and eventually in the end it's the little rock that grows into the mountain and lasts forever or the Son of Man, who has been given all power and all authority for all eternity. That's what we need to focus on. We are very finite creatures. And in our finiteness, a decade, two, three, four, a lifetime, feels like forever. And it feels like this corruption of power is going to be here forever. And it will never end. But we have to remember that in the grand scheme of history, they will all fall. And these are just drops in the bucket compared to the eternal kingdom of God that's going to be established on earth for.
forever. And I think that's the main point that God's trying to communicate here. Not only is he giving them ample evidence to prepare them for what is coming, and they can see the signs as it comes, but also reminding them these signs are all going to drop like flies. Even the worst emperors will drop like flies eventually. 